Hi, this is Erica, and my dad, Steve, listened to every NPR politics podcast religiously for these past two years till we lost him to ALS. Every time I listen now, I think of him and how much he enjoyed learning from Tamara Keith and everyone at NPR. This podcast was recorded at... Oh, that is the most beautiful time step, though kind of the most bittersweet. And thank you, Steve, for, for listening to so many of our episodes. And Erica, we're with you. Let's do this one for Steve. This podcast was recorded at 11.44 a.m. on Thursday, July 18th. Things may have changed by the time you hear this. All right, here's the show. Well, hey there. It is the NPR Politics Podcast. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover politics. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Aisha Roscoe. I also cover the White House. And I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. So, Aisha, you are not with us. We are all here in Washington, but you are down in North Carolina. So can you tell us, first of all, where are you? I am in uh, at, at an airport in Raleigh-Durham, <laughs> and I am under a blue blanket. So if you see someone talking <laughs> under a blue blanket, that's me. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> that's amazing. All right. So, Aisha, you were there because last night President Trump held a rally in North Carolina. Um, he's been holding a number of these rallies, kind of, you know, the campaign rallies at this point now for the 2020 election. But talk to us a bit about what it was like. I mean, it was a really kind of intense crowd, right? Talk to us about what it was like. Yes, uh, I was in Greenville, North Carolina yesterday, and uh, the the crowd at this rally, I mean, they were really amped up. They're always kind of amped up at these rallies, but this one, they were really amped up, in particular about these four congresswomen that President Trump had tweeted about over the weekend, and that really became much of the focus of the rally, and there was a chant against Minnesota Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. Omar! has a history of launching vicious anti-Semitic screeds. Send her back. President Trump didn't stop it. He paused and kind of let it continue on. Kind of stepped back and let it wash over. And she is, of course, a U.S. citizen, like all four of these congresswomen, uh, but she was born in Somalia. You know, send her back, I think, when you hear that, the obvious cadence of it and the intensity of it is familiar, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's third verse, same as the first. It sounds like lock her up, lock her up. And I think it speaks, at least in Aisha, you were there, but the intensity to which Trump supporters embrace and rally around every battle he wages. Yeah, and, and this one, though, has a very specific history. This send her back, uh, sending a U.S. citizen back to where they came from, uh, basically because of where they were born, you know, sending uh, a person of color back to Africa. Uh, the, that has a very long history in this country and, uh, and a racist history in this country. So the, the connotations to this uh, run deep. It is simply, it is different. Um, lock her up is not the same as send her back. It, it is qualitatively different. Um, I, I was looking at this USA Today Ipsos poll um, about the president's original tweets, the one that said go back to the countries from which they came. Um, and here's this might explain where the president's going, though. Um, overall, the majority of people polled uh, said that uh, they thought that the, the tweets were un-American. Um, independent voters, 54 percent, said they thought the tweets were un-American. But only 25% of Republicans saw it that way. 
So, so Sue, I want to ask you specifically how the Congress women, the, the so-called squad that President Trump has specifically been going after, how they've been responding to these pretty personal attacks. You know, they've really leaned into it in a way that they have not shied away from responding, from hitting back at Trump. At the same time the rally was happening last night, the House still happened to be in session. And Ilan Omar tweeted out, uh, essentially during the rally, an image of her wearing a hijab in the uh, speaker seat in the presiding over the House chamber. And it just said, I am where I belong at the people's house and you're just going to have to deal. And it has been liked 265,000 times so far. Mm. That's a lot of likes. So what's been the reaction up on Capitol Hill, specifically from Republicans? You know, I've talked to a lot of Republicans this week. I think it's difficult for them because on the one hand, Trump is still tremendously popular among Republicans. There was some criticism of both his uh, tweets from earlier in the week, the entire episode that's unfolded, his use of rhetoric. And there is some concern about sort of the long term health of the Republican Party. Right. Like the question I have in this week is for Trump is, is this the short term gain for long term pain for the Republicans in that It is very clear President Trump is operating a re-election strategy that is playing off of racial politics and trying to energize an essentially all-white base to turn out in 2020. That is completely opposite from everything Republicans have been told to do to grow the long-term health Mm -hmm. of the Republican Party, right? So Trump's not going to be president in either two years or six years. And the question of what he leaves behind, to me, was very much front and center to this week. And, and so is there a sense from people, though, that maybe you'll be able to squeeze out another election or another to maybe based on the current kind of demographics of the Republican Party, though? That's what I mean about short term gain. I mean, if you look at the map in 2020, I think Trump is betting on winning places like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, where you might be able to bank on strong white support getting you to victory. I think Republicans in the House kind of feel the same way. If you look at where the district lines are drawn, most Republicans tend to represent predominantly white districts. There's a reason why most members of the Republican side of Congress are white men. That is just not a sustainable long-term trajectory. Is that 2020? Is that 2024? We don't know. Obviously, after 2012, a lot of Republicans thought it was then. And then Trump kind of upended that conventional wisdom and won in 2016 with the exact opposite strategy. I still haven't found a single Republican who thinks you can continue to win elections long-term, banking strictly on strong support among essentially older white voters. Yeah. And so when you talk about the future of the Republican Party, not only is this maybe turning off voters of color, but there's also younger voters. When I was in in Greenville, I talked to some young college Republicans and they said uh, they support President Trump, but they did not approve of his comments about uh, these four congresswomen. They said it's okay to disagree with someone, but don't tell a U.S. citizen to leave the country. And that's such a good point, too, because I don't think this is just about alienating people of color. It alienates white people, too, right? Like, this is specifically the kind of stuff that suburban, more educated voters just totally turn away from. And while all this focus has been on the so-called squad and these four very prominent members of the Democratic freshman class, they are not the reason Democrats won the majority. Of the 62 seats that Demo- of the new se- there are 62 Democratic freshmen, 42 of those Democrats took over Republican held seats. They are the majority makers. That does not include these four congresswomen. They are four Democrats who replaced existing Democrats in Congress. 
The majority was won in the suburbs, in right-leaning districts, among people who were turned away from the politics and the style of Donald Trump. I think when you look at down-ballot, the effect of this, I think this is the kind of stuff that makes Democrats look at those districts they're trying to hold and feel more confident that this kind of behavior is going to continue to turn away voters that might not be entirely convinced that they like Democrats and support their ideas, but just fundamentally can't side with something that they find so repugnant. And I think also what we've begun to see is the Democratic Party, you know, you talk about a Republican Party that has maybe gone on to embrace just more and more of the white electorate. On the flip side, you have a Democratic Party that, you know, you look back Back to 2008, when there were allegations, which say untrue, that President Obama was a Muslim, the way that even President Obama engaged in that conversation is so different from a Democratic Party that now, um, you know, is sort of very vocally defending Ilhan Omar. Okay, well, we're going to talk a lot more about the Democratic 2020 primary race and the Democratic 2020 candidates. But first, Aisha, you have to catch a flight, so we're going to let you go. Yeah, I got to get this flight, so I will talk to you guys later. All right, take care. See you. Bye, Aisha. Thanks. So after we said goodbye to Aisha, in fact, after we finished taping this podcast, President Trump disavowed the send her back chant that happened at his rally. It was quite a chant, and uh, I felt a little bit badly about it. But I will say this, uh, I did, and I started speaking very quickly, but it started up rather, rather fast. But as you heard earlier, that's not what occurred. In fact, when the chant started, Trump stepped back from the mic, only returning to speak after the chant had died down. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we'll look at what health care plans the 2020 Democrats are putting forward. Support for NPR and the following message come from ExxonMobil, the company that's working to bring affordable, scalable carbon capture to industries around the world. It's one of the few technologies that could help decarbonize industrial plants by capturing CO2 at its source. Experts agree that it will also play a critical role in reducing global carbon emissions. Find out more at energyfactor.com. Support also comes from Zoom. When you can't be there in person, Zoom. Zoom is used by millions to connect face-to-face, across town, or around the world. Share files, video, anything, and connect through any device, desktop, laptop, tablet, smartphone, or conference room system. Zoom video conferencing, Zoom rooms, Zoom video webinars, and Zoom phone lets you do business at the speed of Zoom. Visit Zoom online to set up your free account today. Meet happy with Zoom. We spend millions of hours and billions of dollars on video games. But can consoles still compete with the next level of streaming and subscriber services? I'm Joshua Johnson. Subscribe to 1A on NPR as we consider the future of gaming. And we're back, and we've got Danielle Kurtzleben here. Hey, Danielle. Hello. So, Danielle, we need your help because it is time to talk about the 2020 Democratic candidates and their plans for health care. Um, and so for folks who don't know, Danielle sits kind of adjacent to me. I feel like she is our resident policy expert. Anytime I have policy questions, you are the person that we can all go to Woo. for advice. So I try. <laughs> this week, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, and Joe Biden all made headlines because they were talking and sometimes clashing over their plans for health care. And one of the things that we constantly heard as a buzzword is this concept of Medicare for all. So let's start there. What is Medicare for all? All right. So Medicare for all is the name of Bernie Sanders' health plan. Uh, it is a single payer health plan, which means that you would have the government, one payer, paying into the health insurance system and everybody would be covered under it, essentially. Now, 
Medicare for All is not the only way to do single payer, but because this is the main plan everybody knows about here in the U.S., Medicare for All has, for better or worse, become synonymous with single payer health care. And we should add that Bernie Sanders, he backed this plan in the 2016 election and well before then as well. This mm-hmm. has been kind of his baby. So when you hear about Medicare for All on the campaign trail, largely you are you're hearing Bernie Sanders' idea or at least his branding sort of being latched onto by a lot of other people in this race. Danielle, let's start with former Vice President Joe Biden, because he came out this week against Medicare for All, which to me felt notable because in this field of Democratic candidates, we have not really heard candidates willing to say that, willing to say, no, I don't think Medicare for All is the right plan. And he did that. Yes, Joe Biden did come out with his plan, which is another public option plan. Public option, to define that really quickly, means that There would be a government-administered plan that people could buy into, something perhaps like Medicare or Medicaid, but that you could buy into if you wanted. If not, theoretically, you can keep your work insurance. You can keep whatever insurance that you have right now. And the idea is that then it doesn't necessarily disrupt what you have. To me, this is very on brand for Biden in that he is running as a more moderate candidate. He is also running as... Barack Obama's running mate. So he is able to remind everyone that Obamacare, you liked Obama, you liked Obamacare, I'm for that. And if you watch the video in which he introduced this health care plan, that's the precise point he's making. I mean, he basically says, I was right there with Barack Obama when mm-hmm. he signed the Affordable Care Act. And, and hey, look, I knew Republicans have been trying to gut this plan, but I didn't oh, think no that Democrats would also want to do that. I knew the Republicans would do everything in their power to repeal Obamacare. They still are. But I'm surprised that so many Democrats are running on getting rid of it. The Affordable Care Act was a historic achievement for President Obama. And if I'm elected president, I'm going to do everything in my power to protect it and build on it. And it's, it does feel like he's sort of confused as to why Democrats, as he says, would want to get rid of the Affordable Care Act, which is what he thinks Medicare for All would do. Well, which also that whole that point that you just brought up that I knew Re- Republicans wanted to gut Obamacare. I didn't think Democrats wanted to like you can kind of push back on that a little, right? Because this is not trying to repeal and replace Obamacare in the way that Republicans were trying to. This is essentially trying to make a system that is much bigger and more comprehensive and, of course, more expensive, as as opponents will tell you, happily. But it was what Democrats were trying to do in the initial push for Obamacare. I mean, the fight over the yes, public option yes. is what delayed and dragged out the health care debate through so much of those years. And they ultimately dropped it because politically they couldn't get it done. So I think it's not so much a new idea for Democrats as trying to go back and relitigate that fight of 09 and 10 in which they enacted Obamacare because it was the best they could do. Let me just say it's also going back to the fight that existed in 2016, the case that Biden is making against Bernie Sanders and Medicare for all is the exact same case that Hillary Clinton made in in the primaries. So, Danielle, let's talk about what Bernie Sanders wants, because he gave a big speech this week in which he he billed it as he was going to be confronting the opponents of a Medicare for all plan, um, which was sort of a a dig, I would say, directly at, at Biden. Sure. He tied a lot of what he was talking about to political power. A lot of what he was saying was tied to, for example, big insurance companies, big drug companies, saying that there's too much of their money and too much of their influence in politics. And so that he's making this pledge that he is not going to accept any money from those companies and he Mm -hmm. wants every other candidate to agree to it. So 
one thing I'm curious about looking forward is this idea of um, how much he is able to set the terms here, because that clearly clearly is a thing he's trying to do, is to establish his own sort of litmus test, which, okay. But aside from that, he got at this idea that I think is really interesting, because he and Joe Biden are both coming at this from different ways, but they're talking about people's comfort levels with their with their health care, right? Because Joe Biden's argument is essentially... If you're comfortable with your doctor, if you like what you have, you can keep it, et cetera, et cetera, which we've heard before. Now, And it didn't entirely work out, but true, on. Totally true. Yeah. What Bernie Sanders is saying is like, do people really like their insurance companies that much? They like their doctors. They like their nurses. But one thing he got at in the speech was, you know, when you have a big health care problem and you're filling out that form to Aetna or Cigna or mm-hmm. Blue Cross, whoever... Do you love your insurance company? Do you really? It would so. overhaul the system entirely. Yes. And, and I think like the the pushback I hear from more establishment moderate Democrats is that when you talk to voters, they they care about the cost of health care. You're yes. not hearing people say, oh, I want to overhaul the entire system and, and just like chuck the entire plan out the window as it is. Um, which brings me to another candidate, Kamala Harris. She talked about health care this week. And I will say... She kind of tries to navigate um, this space in a way that confuses me quite a bit. She has signed on to Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan. Yes. But yet she talks about it like she wants a more incremental approach at times. I so hesi- what does she want? I hesitate because I'm not fully sure. I mean, if that's I don't mean to be flip and I don't mean to be insulting at all. But I mean, listen, like at that debate we all saw when the moderators asked, who wants to eliminate private insurance, her hand went up. Now, she did waffle on it afterwards and say that she that the question was poorly phrased and that she didn't understand it. She thought that the moderator meant, I guess... Um, her own insurance. Correct. Yeah, her own private insurance, which, okay. So she did a CNN interview, which, which is where a lot of this... Uh, a lot of yeah. this talk this week has come from. And in the CNN interview, one of the things she really pushed back against was that Biden point that we just talked about, that this would eliminate Obamacare. And she's saying, no, I fought for Obamacare myself. What this is, is like taking Obamacare to its next step, to paraphrase essentially what she said, that it's sort of building upon it rather than entirely dashing it. But one thing I am curious about, and I'm sure we're all curious about, is, yeah, what what exactly, if she has something that is different from Bernie Sanders' plan, which we said she has co-sponsored, what that plan exactly will be. I have a political question, which is, this seemed like a week when Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden started directly going after each other. Um, and it was like the two guys at the top, or m- marginally at the top, um, sort of duking it out. And I don't understand why that happened this week. Why this week over other weeks, you could say, is debatable. But I would argue that in major part, it's because of health care. And when you talk to progressives, this has been their issue for a really, really long time. It is the animating issue on the progressive left. And so Joe Biden came out this week with his health care plan. And I think that that's what sparked a lot of this conversation. And, and when somebody is going to say Medicare for all isn't run... When somebody, when a candidate's going to say Medicare for all isn't right, you can imagine Bernie Sanders isn't going to take that lightly. This has been a, uh, an issue that he believes 
really fundamentally needs to change. And with the exception of Joe Biden, he's been able to convince most of the leading Democratic 2020 contenders to agree with him, which is pretty astounding because that's fundamentally different than where the party was at, you know, four, eight years ago. There's still great, to me, it seems, political risks with the party moving that much closer to the left on health care for a couple reasons. Mm -hmm. One is that the private insurance industry is a huge employer in this country. And when you start talking about eliminating private insurance and creating a government option, you make people think about their own livelihoods, you know. And in places like Pennsylvania, where the private insurance industry is a huge employer, even if people don't love their health care, don't love their Cigna or don't love their Aetna, they like their jobs. And when you talk about policy ideas that threaten people's livelihoods, that's a really mixed bag. I also think, too, that one thing I hear a lot from voters is, and Democratic voters, I hear this, too, how are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? How are you going to mm-hmm. pay for it? Mm-hmm. And I don't think that Democrats are being as forthcoming about what it would take economically for individual Americans to shift to a public option. And when you ta- start talking about the kind of tax rates people have to pay to make that a reality, this becomes a much more complicated political fight in a general election. All right, we're going to take a quick break. I'm sure we will have plenty more to discuss around policies and plans in the 2020 election cycle in the months to come. But when we get back, it's going to be time for Can't Let It Go. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as depression, stress, anxiety, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment at your convenience. Get help at your own time and your own pace. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. Visit BetterHelp.com politics to learn more and get 10% off your first month. While you were sleeping, a whole bunch of news was happening around the world. And up first is the NPR News podcast that gets you caught up on the big news in a small amount of time. Spend about 10 minutes with Up First, weekday mornings from NPR News. And we're back. And it is time to end the show like we do every single week with Can't Let It Go. That's the part of the show where we talk about the things that we just cannot stop thinking about, politics or otherwise. Tam, why don't you go first? All right. So what I cannot let go of is this app called the Face App. Ooh, yes. You started seeing pictures of people aging themselves in this app and all these pictures were everywhere and like people were doing it. And then all of a sudden, uh, it turns out this app was made in Russia. Of course. (laughs) And um, by making yourself look old, you are possibly giving Russia, who knows, maybe, unclear, they deny it, you are possibly giving all of your data permanently to Russia. (laughs) What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Like, this, they had a very... uh, Uh, lenient uh, sharing policy within the app. Like, it basically said, you'll give us everything. So, in fact, uh, now Chuck Schumer, the uh, Democratic leader in the Senate, is calling on the FBI and the Federal Trade Commission to investigate this. And the DNC, the Democratic Party, who, as we will all remember, faced some serious hacking problems in 2016, uh, sent a warning to all of the campaigns. <laughs> Do not use this app. Oh, my God. It Wait. might be too late. Wait, also, it's like a reminder too late. that it, like, it's not that hard for the Russians to dupe us. 
this, right? Like they do one little face app that does like a quirky photo thing and 80 million Americans are like, okay. Well, yes. not, just, not just a quirky photo thing, a like deathly curiosity thing. Like <laughs> close your eyes and go, oh God, how many crow's feet am I going to have? Oh, oh, that many. Did you, know? you do it? No. Heck I no. didn't do it. Did any of you guys do no. it? I'm, no. I've Good always job, been really team. skeptical of yes, these apps. Yes, me too. By the way, our producer Barton was raising his hand. Oh my God, Barton, you did it? He did it? He's Barton. Not, yep. Now, like, you know, I don't even know what the fine print says. Did I you don't say even... that, like, you communicated with us and therefore all of our data is now also out to Barton's the... phone is going to be listening to everything we say for the, for <laughs> like, the rest of the Some people in St. Petersburg have my pictures. <laughs> I hope the people in St. Petersburg like Taylor Swift. Right. Barton, we're not shaming you. I apologize. <laughs> All right. Well, Sue, what can't you let go? The thing I can't let go this week is what I think might have been the worst coworker farewell party of all time. Oh, Ooh. what's that? I bet there's some bad ones. The store, I don't know, Danielle. <laughs> After I tell you this, you tell me if you can top it. Go on. In Philadelphia, my hometown of Philly, there was a going away party in the newsroom for a longtime columnist named... Um, Stu Bykovsky. And if you've ever been, I mean, I think newsroom going aways are the same as any office. You know, there's like a little cake, maybe a little champagne. People give some speeches. Thank you for your service. Everybody goes back to work. Not at this one. Hmm. At this one, they asked another columnist, a Pulitzer Prize winning columnist who's like a design critic. Her name uh, is Inga Safran. And they are known inside that newsroom to have been a bit of rivals. And she was asked to give one of the toasts at his going away party. Was it like a roast? It was worse than a roast. (laughs) Like roasts have a little bit of humor in them, right? Like it's maybe they make you a little uncomfortable, but everybody gets a laugh. She used her time, and there's video of this, much of the language we could not play on the podcast, of which she takes her speech to just destroy the colleague that she clearly did not like working with all of these years. So the the idea was that she would... Her last chance. Yeah. Last digs at Stu. Who thought that was a good idea? I've never seen anything like it. And not only that, but... During her takedown of him, he's yelling things like, that's a lie. This is a lie. Oh, my God. And this is in front of all of their editors, the entire newsroom. Does she still have a job? Yeah. Oh, wow. And so they just one anonymous quote in the story from someone there that just says, it was absolutely terrible. I couldn't believe what was happening. Uh, and I have never heard of anything like that. And I, it is so perfect that it was in Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> the city of brotherly uh, love. The city of brotherly love. And I have never, I would love to know if other people have ever seen anything like that. And Danielle, I don't think you can top that. Nope, can't. Can't at all. <laughs> All right. Well, Danielle, what can you not let go of? What I can't let go of is uh, a workout routine that uh, <laughs> that got uh, a lot of attention this week. So there is a Canadian pop singer named Grimes. You may or may not be familiar with her. Uh, she put up this Instagram post this week that got a lot of attention, largely because of an eye surgery she said she had had, where she got some sort of polymer surgically attached to her eyes to help with her seasonal affective disorder. It's it's a long story. And th- that in and of itself is a can't let it go. But what got me was her workout routine, um, which is totally relatable, really, uh, because here's what she says she does every day. 
In the afternoons, I do a one to two hour sword fighting session with my trainer, James Liu. Mm, like fencing? Yeah, so perhaps she says sword fighting. Maybe Ooh, I like. Maybe to, it's the big white broadsword. Yeah, I like to imagine this is more Brienne of Tarth than like Olympic fencers, you know. And then um, we go over fundamentals, blah blah blah. To wind down from this, I spend 30 to 45 minutes on an inclined hike, at roughly 4 to 4.5 miles per hour. I then spend 45 minutes stretching. So if you're keeping score at home, you may be at 3.5 hours of working out already. <laughs> but, but, best part, she also, uh, after that, a friend of hers, I guess, comes over and, quote, we do a screaming session for 20 screaming? to 25 minutes. Wait, what did you say? I've screaming? heard of screaming therapy, but screaming. Screaming. Like... Is that exercise? I, I I like to think it is. I guess it gets your heart rate up. Yeah. I mean, she she's talking about her whole daily routine. It also involves a lot of supplements that I'm not even going to get into. But I love the idea of screaming as working out. Our president says that giving a speech is working out. So I think screaming is as well. So cannot let this go. going to try it in the NPR gym tonight. If, <laughs> if you want to be there, I'll be down at around five. So. Group workout? Uh, y- yes. Yes. Screaming on the treadmill. That would actually be hyper in Union Touch. You might burn a lot of calories. Oh, God. Yes. Multifaceted workout. Asma, what can't you let go this week? Okay. So uh, what I can't let go this week, uh, I actually want to phone a friend. What? Yeah, I know. Am I allowed to do that? Is that I mean, you're in the host chair. Do whatever you want. Get us Regis over I'm here. I'm going to phone Tim Mack, my colleague who sits kitty corner to me because what I can't let go of this week is actually a story that he had up but I feel like he needs to tell you the story hello hey Tim Tim hi Tim hey guys hey so uh I phoned a friend I'm phoning you up because (laughs) uh because what I really couldn't let go of this week is a story that you reported out and I felt that I could not fully tell this story the way you could tell this story so please I hand the mic to you so there's this guy, his name is Jerry Foxhoven. He's, he's the person who leads or led Iowa's Department of Human Services. Okay? That, that's an agency with more than 4,000 employees. And it turns out he really loves Tupac. He's a Tupac superfan. He's totally dedicated to the rapper. Um, and he was fired after he sent out an email to all 4,000 employees of the agency uh, in which he quotes from Tupac. Now, he doesn't know whether or not he was fired because of that, but he had been working there for two years at the, the highest levels, and he was never told why he was fired. So it makes you wonder whether or not that might have been the reason. Another Tupac conspiracy. I know. <laughs> but this was not just like average love for Tupac. Can you please give us an example of just this his is, sheer dedication? This is super love for He's always quoting Tupac in uh, emails to his staff. He's They're like inspirational quotes. Inspirational quotes. He had a birthday party with Tupac-themed goods, that uh, baked <laughs> goods awesome. that his staff brought in for him. I mean... I filed a public records request to get, you know, some of his emails uh, related <laughs> to Tupac. That in he, itself is hilarious. He, like, warns the staff on one day. He's like, I might be a little down today because today is the 22nd anniversary of Tupac's death. Mm-hmm. He wrote that in, in one of his emails to his, to his uh, wow, more close staff. Um, and you really, have to, you really have to go to NPR's website and go and see this email where he sends to, um, to all his staff and says, 
um, how how much he's inspired by Tupac. There's something so like endearingly kind in the way he comes off in these emails, and he just in my I'm picturing like who would play him in the movie, and it's the <laughs> same guy. Do you ever watch Parks and Rec? Jerry Gergich. Oh. <laughs> like the other Jerry, like they just seem like their temperament seems so the same and that he just loves Tupac in a very earnest, sweet kind of way. Tim, is there like a uh, Tupac quote that is appropriate for this moment? Is there a Tupac quote that's appropriate for his firing? Probably yeah. keep your head up. Well, keep your head up, Jerry. We're thinking of you. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, all. All right, well, that is a wrap for today. We will be back as soon as there is political news that you need to know about. And a reminder that we are hitting the road. We have two live shows coming up, one in Boulder, Colorado on September 20th and another in Washington, D.C. on November 8th. Grab a ticket by heading to nprpresents.org. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover politics. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben. and I also cover politics. And I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Please, you got to keep your head up.